his people. Christ as the one who fights for his people. So uh, turn first to Genesis chapter 3. I'll begin reading in verse 15. I will put enmity, or just 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here, the Lord, Yahweh, is speaking to the serpent, to Satan, and saying, at this point, I'm declaring war against you and your people And I will have a people for myself. Enmity is that principle. War. Joshua chapter 5. I'll read verses 13 through 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our enemies? And he said, No, but... I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And then Hebrews chapter 2 Beginning in verse 14, I'll read to verse 16. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of David. And if you will uh, grant me one more, Uh, Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon, that is Satan, I added that, by the way, and the great dragon was thrown down the ancient serpent, of course he'll add it here, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. This is actually one of the places where we learn that the serpent in the garden is explicitly Satan himself. All of these things, God's word, reflect to us this principle, that Christ fights for his people. And he has been, has been victorious. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's word. Lord, grant to us, even tonight, not just wisdom, but hearts aflame with gratitude and a glorious burden to deliver to those who even now are under the influence of the great enemy, who are in prison, that you would, through the word, preached, and our mouths as we open them, as we go forth from this place, proclaim that news that sets the captives free. Oh Lord, our longing is that Reformation OPC might be a hospital for the sick, that we might see ourselves even tonight in need of the work of the good doctor. And so, Lord, perform that work, that surgery, that work of sanctification in our hearts tonight, that we might have hearts like your heart, that delight to do your will, that are jealous for your glory, 
and that long to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This we ask in your name. Amen. Uh, tonight, as we look at this theme, the theme of the one who we sing in Almighty Fortress is our God, Lord Sabaoth. That just means the Lord, the mighty warrior. Uh, we look at Christ's role, not just as the one who walks with us, but the one who fights on our behalf. A battle that we cannot win on our own. The great promise of the covenant of grace in Genesis 3.15 is that God would send one who can do what Adam failed to do and thusly could no longer do as one, as one who was broken by the fall. A new covenant head, a covenant head would achieve the victory. Uh, three points uh, that I wish to make this evening uh, related to this wonderful theme of Christ, the one who fights for us. The first, the declaration of enmity. We see that in Genesis chapter 3. We see it carried out in the course of redemptive history. The declaration of enmity. Second, the commander of the army of the Lord. We see that, of course, in Joshua 5. And then the continuing, or rather, continuing in the office of king. That's a reflection of what Christ does now in his exalted glory as he continues, as we confess, Christ continuing to subdue all of his and our enemies. The declaration of enmity the commander of the army of the Lord, and then lastly, continuing in the office of king. Let's look at the first part, this reflection of God's glorious promises made in Genesis 3.15. Not only covenant cursing, that God would cause labor to be frustrated, pain in childbirth, and then this curse given to Satan that is for the saints a blessing. It is in Genesis 3.15 that we see sides drawn, a line drawn. Now, before the fall, before the fall even of Lucifer, who was a great and beautiful angel, we see in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, there was once a time where there was no conflict in the cosmos. But due to the betrayal of that once great angel and other angels who fell with him, the heart of that conflict being pride and jealousy, the usurpation of rightful authority by created beings, they were expelled from the realm of God and angels. Men were quickly brought into that conflict when they fell in their rebellion. And so what you find in Genesis 3.15 is a promise of enmity between God and the righteous angels, and not just God and the righteous angels, but those whom God would save out of sin, those whom we call the elect on one side, and then those on the other are Satan, the demons, and those who are of the seed, covenantally united to the devil. So there are two families, two nations, two sides. And so when God makes the promise of enmity, it is actually a grace. God could have said, all of you, you're done. And could have wiped all men and angels from the face of the earth, from the realm of heaven... And maybe to begin again. I don't know. That is not the way things went. 
Instead, what God decided to do before the foundations of the world were laid within the eternal decrees of the council of the persons of the Godhead is that he would save for himself a holy nation, a royal priesthood. And so that promise of enmity is not just a promise of combat against, but a deliverance for his chosen people. He will fight for his people. And when those sides were drawn, there is this promise of enmity that would result in a kind of future by which all the nations of men would be divided. And so there are those who are in Christ and those who are not. There are those who are united to him by faith, having been elected before the foundations of the world, chosen in Christ, and those who are not. We say elect, and the other word is reprobate. And those are technical theological words, but they have incredible practical relevance. And so what we find on earth is more than just the war between competing tribes and nations and cities like Israel and Palestine. We find a holy war between the church and those who are not members of the visible, and in particular, the invisible church. The invisible church being those who are the elect, those who are truly of the number. The visible church, of course, being those who profess faith along with their children. But there is this promise of future, constant enmity. And so what we find throughout the course of Scripture is not only the theme of Christ walking with his people, but there is a future, there is a, a theme of Christ fighting sometimes against. You remember the story of the Lord Jesus Christ before he becomes Jesus, the second person that God had, wrestling with Jacob. It's a kind of sanctifying scuffle. And in order to show his dominance, it is not that the Lord could not beat Jacob. The Lord was teaching Jacob something. Stop wrestling with me. And then he touched his hip and knocked it out of socket. A sanctifying experience. And Jacob, we know, walked with a limp for the rest of his days. Perhaps there is a lesson there for us who often wrestle against the Lord. Stop before you get a bummed hip. Perhaps some, some metaphorical. I'm not talking to people with bummed hips. <laughs> Teresa and Annie. <laughs> I'm not just talking to you. <sighs> Even the thorn in the flesh, right? We see Paul. It was not a physical ailment. It was a burden of ministry, perhaps most likely even another member of the church that he struggled with. But Christ fights for his people. This is the promise and we see this promise played out throughout history. And it is a promise that God intends to keep. And the great authentication of that promise is that Christ walks with his people. Now, in Joshua chapter 5, and this actually leads me to my second point, the commander of the army of the Lord, we come to that place and there are many such occasions, some even think, that when Abraham ran into Melchizedek, that that was actually, potentially, 
the incarnate Son of God, before he became Jesus the Messiah in the Gospels. There's some arguments moving in both directions, but the fact of the matter is it is testimony of God's continued superintendence and presence with his people. Now, in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 5, there is clearly, clearly an appearance of Christ prior to his coming in the Gospels in the New Testament, where Joshua goes out and he encounters in Joshua chapter 5, beginning in verse 13, when he was by Jericho, this is prior to the fall of the city of Jericho, he lifts up his eyes and he sees a man who is standing before him. And he has his sword drawn. This is verse 13. Joshua goes to him and says... It's a valid question, isn't it? But it's the kind of questions that people who are not in the know completely ask. Parents, these are the kinds of questions your children ask. And they're not to be despised, they're to be taught. Not just as an answer, but how they should ask the question. And Joshua asks, are you for us or for our enemies? This is the kind of question that a commander of an army asks. That's who Joshua was. Except there was one greater than Joshua who actually commanded the army of angels. Who took down the walls of Jericho later? Does sound bring down walls? Well, you know, there's a lot of these sort of archaeological agnostics and atheists who say maybe they were playing the kinds of notes. This has actually been posited, that there was such sonic vibration and it resonated at such a frequency that maybe that's what brought the, come on. The simplest answer is what? That the commander of the army of God commanded a host that tore down the walls, a force that no eyes could see. Those angels of God. And so Joshua comes to the commander of the army of the Lord and says, Who are you for? And this is Christ, says, No. I am the commander of the army of the Lord and I have come. And then Joshua fell on his face and worshipped. The reason we know that this is Jesus or a pre-incarnate Jesus, the Christ, is because anytime it's an angel, the angel says, Don't worship me. Christ was welcoming the worship. In fact, that's what he demands. And what Joshua did was exactly what a man of faith and righteousness ought to do. And so he says, what does my Lord say to me, Joshua, his servant? And the commander of Yahweh's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. It's the same encounter that Moses had with God, Christ, at the burning bush. One was a vision of the sanctifying presence of God. The other is a vision of the conquering presence of God. Both are essential for the kingdom of God to be manifest on earth, not only with Old Testament Israel, but New Testament Israel. In fact, if anything, one of the next visions that most clearly looks 
or reflects the principle that we find here is later the Mount of Transfiguration and then the glorified visions of Christ and the encounters that the apostles have with Christ in the upper room and after his resurrection. What has Christ just done when he gathers his disciples in the upper room? He assembles them for battle and then he sends them out a little bit later on but he is the glorified, risen, resurrected Redeemer. And what has he just done? He has come back from battle that has cost him his life for a season, and yet he has destroyed the head of the serpent. And so the history of redemption is not just one in which Christ walks with his people but he is waging war on their behalf. It's not just a pleasant stroll down the pathway, the greenway. It's a stroll through a battlefield. And the types and signs that we find in the Old Testament of Christ's victory, we see Moses in Egypt. What are the plagues? They are divine assaults against the pagan demons or the lower G gods of Egypt. And the one who destroys the power of those gods in Egypt is the same one who walked on earth in the Gospels and cast out demons in the name of God. We see the victory of the judges, Deborah, Gideon, Samson, and others who fought and were given victory for no other reason than that Christ is Lord Sabaoth. He is the commander of the army of the Lord. We see David. And is there a greater picture of what Christ does for his people against Egypt? You know who the Philistines were? They were just Egyptians. They were all from Egypt. And here David, the great king of Israel, the chosen one, the man after God's own heart, prior to his coronation stands before Goliath and his Goliath is spewing forth curses like the serpent of revelation David says shut your mouth how does he do this he cuts off his head he does not leave him a mouth or a neck from which he might utter curses any longer Now, boys, yes, (laughs) right? Is this not what Christ does? Does Christ not in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection, we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Christ has put death to death. Christ has cut off the head of the serpent. He has crushed the head of the dragon. These moments of bloody warfare are testimonies of what Christ will and is and will continue to do, has, is, and will continue to do for his people. But Yahweh does not do this at the behest of men. He does it at the behest of his Father. When we see the love that Christ has for men... It is a love that is directed for us because we are his bride, his body, the church. But that love for men is ultimately connected to his desire to obey 
and his love for the Father. That this pursuit of sinful men is a Trinitarian expression of divine affection and power. Such that when we get to the cross of Christ, on the moment in the occasion, or right there at the moment of his death, what do we see happening at the curtain of the temple? That place that divided the Holy of Holies. The place where only the high priest once a year could go. The curtain is torn. Now, what that does not signify is that all may enter in. What it signifies is what God had intended from the beginning is that he would leave his holy dwelling and he would dwell among the people. This is why in the Old Testament you have laws of purification regarding the land because what God wants is for all the earth to be made holy like the temple, like the holy of holies is, so that he may leave and go where his people are. He comes to us. He does not come down in a sense of dealing with our sins any other way than the righteousness of Christ making those who are his people holy. What has then been accomplished or what was necessary in order for Christ by his Holy Spirit to come down to 203 Rhine Oakland Road? He's here with us. Why? Because he has made us holy. We are a people holy, a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood. And so again, as I said this morning, the history of redemption is a history of Christ walking with his people. The, the, the Trinity, through the, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, walking among his people. But the history of redemption is also a story of cosmic warfare where Christ has pledged and promised and achieved the very thing that he has promised. And that is... Freedom from sin and death. Now, the fight's not over, is it? Christ continues to fight for his people. And he assures us of his victory because Christ has already, in his death, burial, and resurrection, broken the power of the devil. Satan is bound, and he has been cast out. He is Christ, the risen king. He is in glory. He sits upon the throne of heaven and earth, and he has promised to fight. And that leads me then to my last point. Continuing in the office of king. The surety that his resurrection gives, that is the promise that means something, right? It's like a stamp of authenticity. So maybe if you buy a Swiss Army knife and you buy it from the original retailer, what comes with that little tin box that the knife is in is a stamp of authenticity that this knife was made in Switzerland. And when you look at that, you say, it's legit. The surety that the resurrection offers you and me is that one way we will be delivered from this conflict. And even now, while we remain in the conflict, Christ's defeat of death makes our sufferings matter. It gives them glorious context so that none of it is in vain. Solomon Ecclesiastes says, remember, I've said it a number of times from the pulpit, if you throw out your bread on the water, it will return to you. It seems like a waste. But all that is done for the glory and honor of Christ and in service to his kingdom and his people accomplishes something. It may feel like you're just going, 
and letting an arrow loose into the, <laughs> the mass of enemies across the field. And you just launch it. That arrow is going to hit something. It will, t- it will find purchase. It will accomplish something in the work of the kingdom. Otherwise, what are children for? They're useless until they become adults, aren't they? Now, what I'm not saying is, all right, go get your kids and put them on the front line. What I'm saying is, in your very homes, among their very friends, in the smallest and simplest of ways, their keeping of the fifth commandment is not just an act of obedience to God. It is an assault on the kingdom of darkness. All obedience to the law of God in honor of the king is something that is waging war. Because the world is not content to sit outside the doors of our covenant homes, is it? It wants in. Satan himself, right, is a roaring lion. He wants in. But the surety of Christ's resurrection that is even given to our children in their baptism is Christ claims you for his own. One of the great promises, one of the most beautiful moments in the whole of the New Testament and the Gospels is when Christ comes to Peter and he says to Peter, Satan asked to have you. He wanted to sift you. And I said, no. No. Such is the privilege and the promise of all those who belong to Christ by faith. Because he's king. In fact, our own shorter catechism, question 26, asks, how doth Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes or executeth the office of a king in subduing us to himself. That means he first conquers our hearts. Then, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. This is what Christ has promised to do, and this is what he's able to do. Just as David subdued and destroyed and humiliated Goliath, so Christ will all his and our enemies. Christ as king will fulfill the promise of his regal power. He is bringing to nothing the kingdom of darkness, and he is by his spirit bringing about an end that is fulfillment to all that he has promised Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. He promises to Peter in the fight of the gospel against darkness in the building of the church, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What does that last phrase mean? In the end, when all the dust is settled, when Christ returns, the church is victorious. And this is the promise of eschatological victory. All of his and our enemies will be rolled underfoot. That the Spirit has taken up the mission of applying what Christ has fulfilled. And the Spirit is God. He's not a substitute. He's not just what we'll do until Christ comes back. He is God among us. And even as Christ has gained victory on the cross, the Spirit will bring about mighty deliverance to those 
whom Christ has purchased for himself, given to him by the Father, and in due season will come to know and love God for themselves. This is the promise of the king who fights for us. Let's pray. Lord, even...